1928, sound came to the motion pictures. To the movie industry, that is the animated cartoon and regular motion pictures alike, a new chapter was opened. That new chapter? The Jazz Singer, the movie released by the Warner Brothers starring Al Jolson that brought synchronized sound to the theaters and served as the inspiration for Steamboat Willie, which we're talking about right now. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. You ain't heard nothing yet. Wait a minute, I tell you. You ain't heard nothing. You want to hear Toot 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 All right. All of a sudden, thousands of people could hear their favorite song coming out of the actor's mouth. Incredible. And we know when Walt saw this movie that he realized that this was the future of Hollywood and this was where he wanted to go with his cartoons. Adding music so that people could hear even cartoons doing some of their favorite songs. I like this one from The Jazz Singer. What is this? Let's, let's see. Wait, did he just say Mammy? Oh my gosh. Let me let me look at the video. Oh no. He's wearing blackface. Yeah, let's stop this right now. Start all over, start all over. Uh, let's let's try that again. Okay, uh, Walt, there has to be something else you can talk about about the whole Steamboat Willie days that doesn't have to do with the talkies and Al Jolson. Right? Yes, but uh, in those days I had Felix the Cat to, uh, to compete with, and uh, oh, I can't remember all the others, but uh, you just had to get in there and you had to make them funnier or, uh, or better, or I don't know what. Of course, Walt's being uncharacteristically humble here. He knew exactly what. He was a genius of knowing what audiences wanted before they even knew that they wanted it. Just look at the fact that Mickey Mouse was already based off of a pre existing design of his own. Oswald the Lucky Rabbit. And Oswald the Lucky Rabbit, who was popular among audiences, was based off of another design, Julius the Cat. Julius the Cat was also popular in the Alice comedies, but Julius the Cat was based off of a previous design that was not his own, but that his distributor wanted him to create. Something based off of Felix the Cat. Perfect, that's a great place for us to start. Oh, oh wait, what, what am I hearing? Oh no, this is the Crazy Cat Ballet by John Carpenter in 1922. And this was composed based off of the same character that Felix the Cat is based off of, Crazy Cat by George Herriman. And George Herriman had based that character off of his own previous drawings, not of a cat, but previous drawings of people, of racist, stereotypical black people. Oh no. Okay, okay, okay. So um, you know what the problem here is? I'm not talking music. And this is a podcast about music, right? Nothing can corrupt music. And Steamboat Willie is notable because it opens with music. It opens with the tune that Mickey Mouse whistles, which is Steamboat Bill. Steamboat Bill, steaming down the Mississippi. Yeah, and Steamboat Bill, the song, was uh, written in 1911 by the Leeton Brothers, who were vaudeville performers, and they had a really interesting act. Uh, they, they were actually... Oh, come on. They were a minstrel act. You know, blackface. There's no getting around this. I guess we might as well just start at the beginning. I'm Isaiah Campbell, and this is Decomposed.
So we need to start with a bit of a caveat here because history is complicated. It's not a science. It's a study of humanity. And since humans are complex, complicated, nuanced people, history itself is also really tangled up and not easy to simmer down into basic bullet points. Hindsight's also 2020, but we have to remember that progress makes progress obsolete. So things that yesterday seemed innovative, today seem outdated. And ideas and mentalities that people had hundreds of years ago, in their day, they may have felt rightfully so that they were ahead of their time. That doesn't mean they were where they needed to be just as much as we aren't where we need to be today. So we don't want to paint history with broad strokes because in so doing, we oversimplify people and motivations. And if we oversimplify it, then we are in danger of enabling it to continue. And that's the last thing we want to do. All right, let's get started. Getting back up to that first step. Uh, it's, uh that doesn't collapse too far, but uh, it's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. There have been moments in history where everything changed, and sometimes those moments are captured for us to watch and analyze. Neil Armstrong walking on the moon, perfect example. Another moment like that was the moment when a mouse started to whistle. Steamboat Willie changed the world. And that's not an understatement. Like, more so even than the jazz singer with Al Jolson. Have you ever seen the jazz singer with Al Jolson? It's doubtful. But we have all heard that whistling mouse. Steamboat Willie was the culmination of American culture that had ever been before that point. And Steamboat Willie has led to American culture as we know it today. It is the dividing point. Everything is either something that led to Steamboat Willie or something that Steamboat Willie led to. I mean, part of the reason why that might seem a little bit of an exaggeration is because we can't even imagine a world where American culture was not a thing. Like, imagining a world where Every country around the world basically is watching movies that come out of Hollywood or listening to music that's in the top 40 in America. But that world definitely existed for most of history, actually. So where did American culture come from? Well, unfortunately, like most things in America, it was brought about through the blood, sweat, and tears of slaves and their descendants, largely and unfortunately. So when I say the word slave, you might already think of African slaves. And you're right, but you're not 
totally right. This is an example of what we talked about earlier, how we tend to oversimplify things in history and not see them for the complicated mess that they are. Because, yes, the slaves that came to America were from Africa, but Africa is a huge continent. I mean, you could fit all of the United States, Canada, and India onto the continent of Africa. And when the Portuguese first started exporting slaves from Africa, they weren't all over the continent. They were mainly from the area of West Africa, pretty much around where we would consider to be Nigeria today. But even in that particular region, you didn't have just one set people group that they were pulling from. Instead, the slaves that came to the Americas came from a myriad of people groups, all diverse and all with their own languages and cultures. So like for instance, you had the Igbo people who were brought to the United States and they had music, uniquely Igbo music. Listen to it. And then you also had the Fulani people who had their own very distinct music. And the largest people group represented in the Americas was the Congolese people who had their own very unique music. And then there was the U people, who also, surprise, surprise, had a very distinctive musical style. And the early slave traders and slave owners knew that there were distinctive groups. We know this because they would pick from different groups based on the job at hand. So like rice cultivators or indigo dyers, they wanted specific peoples who were used to doing those things. So they knew about cultural identity as far as working, but they ignored it as far as everything else. They just wanted the slaves to be slaves or worse. So it's really easy for us when we look back to paint a broad stroke over the white population of the United States as well and say, well, they're racist. Well, you're right, but you're also not as right as you might think. Because yes, racism, prejudice, and discrimination were rampant everywhere, but it had different shades and nuances depending upon the person exhibiting it. For instance, you had those Portuguese slave traders and the people buying the slaves in the sugar fields and in the tobacco fields and in the cotton fields who treated slaves as basically cattle. They branded them, they dehumanized them, they didn't care if they lived or died. Then you also had some like George Washington, who viewed the slaves not as cattle, but as human-ish. 
a lower kind of human, a human who needed the white man to survive, a human who was there to support and help the white man as he accomplished his cause. And so George Washington's slaves were definitely not treated as poorly as, say, the slaves in the tobacco fields and the sugar plantations, but that doesn't mean they were treated like humans at all. George Washington had one slave whose name was Sambo Anderson. And Sambo was a somewhat common name among slave populations. Sambo Anderson was actually from Guinea, multilingual. He was a polyglot, very intelligent. He was skilled in a lot of ways. And George Washington would talk about this in his journals, marveling at the ability of Sambo. And the name Sambo began to be identified with what many white Americans in this time felt was the ideal slave. A slave who was happy to serve his white masters, happy with being a slave. Sambo was this identity that white people put on slaves for hundreds of years, but then something happened that gave a new label for a different kind of slave, and this one terrified Americans. And that was the uprising of Nat Turner. Nat Turner, you might remember, was the slave who led the revolt and killed about 50 slave owners and their families and their children as he tried to lead a group of people to freedom. Well, the idea that slaves could rise up like that and kill you led to another identity that people began to look at slaves and another nickname. That nickname was Nat. And so in the early days of the Americas, in the 1800s, all the way up really through the 19th century, you could be a Sambo or you could be a Nat. You could be the Sambo character who was supportive and helpful and who loved the white man. Or you could be a Nat, the character who was violent and threatening and who every white man was afraid of. You know, it's kind of funny, but... I've noticed that those same stereotypes, although not still called Sambo and Nat, are still around. I can't tell you how many times whenever a white person is telling a story about this exciting and dangerous event, and they want to emphasize how threatening the other person was, they will say, and in walks this big black dude. And the opposite stereotype of the ideal black person who is so helpful and is so grateful that white people are around is also still unfortunately seen in movies and in television. Just Google the magical Negro trope and you'll see it in action. And so that brings us to the first international American cultural sensation, a fictional icon that splashed into the marketplace and set standards and introduced an entirely new way of art and way of doing things. The predecessor to Mickey Mouse. But I don't think Disney would ever want to claim that. I'm talking about the character of Jump Jim Wheel about and turn about and do just so Every time I wheel about I jump Jim Crow And if you're thinking, wait a minute, Jim Crow, isn't that the name of all those laws that were for segregation, the uh, 
separate but equal nonsense that happened around the early 20th century and the end of the 19th century. Yeah, you're right. That is the name of those laws, and those laws got those names from this character, Jim Crow, created by Thomas Rice, and in one of the great ironies of history, Jim Crow debuted in 1828, 100 years exactly before Steamboat Willie. So Jim Crow was a character done in blackface. He was supposed to be black. He was performed by a white man. And this is not the first time in history that a a white actor has portrayed a black actor by putting something on their skin to darken it. In fact, you could find this historically all the way back into the days of the Renaissance whenever William Shakespeare had his actors darken their skin using coal dust. But what is unique about the character of Jim Crow and the performance by Thomas Rice is that it created a whole new genre in America. Uh, the first American genre of entertainment, the minstrel show. Now, when we look back on this, it is horrifying. It is ignorant and prejudiced and racist, and that is an accurate assessment. But it's that character of Jim Crow that we could actually see for its day being progressive. Yes, backwards for us today. Absolutely. But that speaks to just how bad things were in those days, that a character like Jim Crow was revolutionary. The character of Jim Crow was most likely inspired by stories of Davy Crockett and Daniel Boone more than it was by any actual black slave or the black slave stories. And these stories were fantastic about somebody who could wrestle an alligator and somebody who could dance with bears. And as you listen to the stories that Jim Crow tells about himself in his shows that Thomas Rice put on, you get this idea that Jim Crow is a superhero in a way. And this character, when Thomas Rice introduced him, became a sensation, incredibly popular. And I know what you might be thinking, well, yeah, probably in the South because it made fun of black people. Actually, no. Jim Crow, the character, was popular in the North and overseas in the UK. The Jim Crow character became a symbol for people in the United States who were trying to find their own identity. America was having a bit of an identity crisis. They were no longer colonies. They were also no longer revolutionaries. They were now expanding and not really sure what that meant for themselves. They had gone through some presidents that were good, and now they were starting to go through presidents that were not so good. Andrew Jackson had gotten rid of the National Bank, and so very quickly, America actually fell into a financial depression. People were losing their jobs everywhere. People were scraping by. And then you had this character of Jim Crow. And in this fantastical representation, they saw something that they wanted to be. And part of that is because they recognized that the black slave life was maybe the worst life possible. And yet here on stage was someone who was in the worst life possible who is now becoming a superhero and overcoming. So Jim Crow was to the people of the 1830s what Superman became in the 1930s, a symbol of triumph over adversity. Of course, also a racist icon. 
And it's important to emphasize the experience and characters that Thomas Rice and other minstrel performers were portraying on stage were not theirs to portray. They were sitting in a country with millions of disenfranchised black Americans, and they had the audacity, instead of giving opportunity to black Americans to enter into the entertainment world, to instead take those opportunities for themselves. It was plagiarism and piracy. Even if Thomas Rice wasn't motivated by racism, which there's no way to know for sure, it was ethically and morally wrong. Now, Thomas Rice was from New York, and he was coming from an area that was already starting to feel the rumbles of abolition. And Thomas Rice's portrayal of Jim Crow actually gave fuel to the abolition movement as people began to encounter an icon on stage that was not a Sambo character, a, a happy slave who just wants to be a slave, and also was not a Nat character, somebody that they were afraid of and were worried that if they freed the slaves, suddenly there'd be a mob going and killing every white person around. Here was Jim Crow, a person that could triumph on his own and a person that made a good argument for freedom. And of course, the irony is that the argument that maybe black people had an identity apart from what white people had been representing them as was a white man in blackface makeup is mind-boggling. But it made some progress. But the progress that it made was more so progress for the entertainment industry than it was for the freedom and civil rights movement. See, the South was hit hard by this depression all across the Cotton Belt. You had farmers and plantation owners who were losing their shirts because the banks were shut down and all of a sudden they had no income. And these guys see a guy from New York who is parading on stage as a black man. And they think to themselves, I could do that. So you start to have the explosion of Southerners and Northerners too, who smear cork on their face and who go on stage and start doing their own versions of a show like what Thomas Rice had done. However, their versions of these shows are definitely shaded by their own agenda. The Southerners did not want the Northerners or anyone else to view slaves as heroes. So the minstrel shows began to create new characters that doubled down on stereotypes and in horribly inaccurate portrayals of black Americans. And it was popular as heck. Now, one of the big appeals of Thomas Rice's act was the theme song, the Jump Jim Crow song. And many of them figured if we are going to be as popular as him, we need to have a theme song too. One such act was George Washington Dixon, one of the earliest minstrel performers right around the same time as Thomas Rice. And he created his own character with his own theme song. The character's name was Zip Coon. And the theme song was his own lyrics set to a melody that had already been popular. We know that melody today as Turkey in the Straw.
And if you're thinking to yourself, wait a minute, that seems like such a familiar tune for Disney, you're absolutely right, because the second half of Steamboat Willie involves Mickey and Minnie playing Turkey in the Straw using the bodies of various animals that are all around them. But you have the rise of all these other minstrel acts, and they also need music. Where are they going to get their music? What are they going to do? Some of them found old folk tunes. Some of them found things that they had already been singing around their plantations. Once again, nobody is actually asking any of the African slaves what music they like or listen to or sing on their own. They don't care. They just want to make an easy buck. And so you have one group of minstrels who go out of their way to start hiring songwriters to write songs for them, the Christie minstrels. And they discover one particular songwriter who will become not only the first professional songwriter in American history, but he will also become the songwriter whose songs we most often associate with animation, with cartoons, and really with American culture. That songwriter's name was Stephen Foster. Yeah, he's the writer of songs like Camp Town Races, which you're hearing behind us right now. Uh, he also wrote a song called Oh Susanna. And Stephen Foster's songs, for me, always evoke images of Bugs Bunny, Elmer Fudd, and Foghorn Leghorn. Oh, it rained all night, today I wept, the weather is so dry. It was so warm, I froze to death. Susanna, don't you cry. Watch Susanna, and don't you cry for me. I'm gonna get me lots of gold before victory. Now, Stephen Foster wrote songs not just for minstrel shows. He also wrote hymns for churches. He wrote just regular old popular parlor songs. But it was definitely his minstrel songs that put him on the map. However, his most popular minstrel song and by far his most successful song also turns out to be one of his more complex songs. And that is The Old Folks at Home. Way down upon the Swanee Far, far away There's where my heart is turning ever That's where the old folks stay Now, when I say this song is complex, I'm not talking about musically complex. It's not. It's like three chords total. And the melody line is mainly stepwise motion around four or five notes. But this song is complex philosophically and complex in what it portrayed. Because this is a minstrel song. It's sung by an actor in blackface who is singing wistfully and longfully for his old home. Problematic, yes, because his old home was his plantation that he either ran away from or was freed from, but it also introduced a concept that rocked America, and it was the image 
of a black man singing and being sad. See, minstrel shows, even Big Daddy Rice's Jim Crow, one thing they all had in common was the black characters were always happy because that was what people wanted. The only other option for black characters was the Nat Turner image, angry, vengeful, murderous. And yet this song, The Old Folks at Home, presented a black character who was sad and lonely and longing. People didn't know what to do with that image. You mean the slaves might not be happy all the time? You mean black people can feel emotions? This is actually a problem we're still encountering all the way up to this day. You know, even in the 1920s, the American Psychological Association made claims that black people didn't feel depression. Suicide rate among black Americans is one of the leading causes of death. According to one statistic, every four hours, an African-American person kills themselves. And this is not something that people like to talk about because in a lot of ways, this image that black Americans are not sad, are not feeling blue, is pervasive. And so this song spreads that message because Stephen Foster was beginning to feel the guilt and pain of knowing he was propagating something that should not be around anymore, slavery. This song and other songs like it helped to build the platform on which abolition in the 40s and 1840s and 1850s became a thunderous voice that inspired politicians such as Abraham Lincoln to finally declare that slavery was wrong, that all men truly are created equal. And after the Civil War, the stage finally found room for black actors to portray themselves. Not in a perfect way. They were still having to wear blackface. But this is the industry that will eventually lead us to a whistling mouse. How? We'll talk about that next time. But until then, I'm Isaiah Campbell, and this has been Decomposed. Decomposed is a production of Atom Bomb Media, which is something that my brother and I co-own together. If you'd like to support this particular podcast or other projects that we are working on, please go to patreon.com forward slash Adam Bomb. Also, if you have any questions about today's topic or any other topic that regards Disney music and music history, please send me an email at Isaiah at AdamBombMedia.com. Look me up on Twitter at IsaiahJC or on Instagram at the same address. And please, please, please support black artists and authors and musicians. Support black voices being heard in our country and around the world. Have a great, great day. Bye.